Let's pray, and then we're going to read Psalm 3 together and ask that God would uh, lead our time of study this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord God, uh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, when your people come together, when we rejoice in who you are, when we praise what you've done, and we see the awesome and mighty deeds of God. And God, we get the chance to sing about that, that you are a great Lord over all the universe. You are a sovereign God who holds the world in your hand. And God, we pray now that as we study this word that you've given us, this revelation that you've given us through King David, that you, God, would impress upon our hearts your majesty, your sovereignty, your goodness, and just who you are. And that would awe us and inspire us to follow you and follow more closely your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. And we pray this all in the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ, your anointed king. Amen. So Psalm chapter 3, if you have it open in front of you, Psalm chapter 3. If you don't know where the Psalms are, the Psalms are kind of like a collection of poems. And they're gathered right in the middle of the Bible. So if you have a problem finding it, Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. And we're going to be reading Psalm 3. Is the word of God. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessings be on your people. This is the word of God. I'm an avid reader, and one of my favorite authors is Fedor Dostoevsky. You've probably heard me mention that name a time or two here. And one of my favorite books is The Brothers Karamazov. And the thing I love about The Brothers Karamazov is it is a fascinating novel from beginning to end. And like any novel, you know, it has several overlapping themes in it. But probably the main theme in the entire novel is a theme of real deep hostility and tension between a father and a son. So there's a father, his name is Dmitry Karamazov, or sorry, Fedor Karamazov, and his son, Dmitry Karamazov. And throughout the book, you see Dmitry trying to earn the affection of his father, but making no real uh, progress in that direction. In fact, he moves back to his hometown in order to receive an inheritance that his dead mother had left him, the one that Fedor held. And as Dimitri is trying to convince his father to give him this inheritance that was rightfully his from his deceased mother, Fedor was having none of it. In fact, Fedor was so greedy and so lustful for power and actual worldly wealth that he refused to give his son any of this inheritance that was rightfully his. And that was not the only thing between Dmitri and Fedor. They actually were both in love with the same woman. This woman named Grushenka, and Grushenka was 30 years younger than Fedor, but nonetheless, All of this hostility, all of this tension reaches this boiling point to the the point where Dmitri ends up pummeling his father within an inch of his life and then promises to come back to finish the job later. 
And you can actually hear of similar crimes that go on today. You might be familiar with this story. It came out 10 years ago in Detroit. There was a man, his name was Richard Cipriano. His house was broken into at 3 a.m. And then two hours later, the police arrived to find Richard dead on, on the ground, his wife and his son Salvador, both paralyzed, and two other children who were cowering in the bedroom who had actually called the police. And several hours later, Richard's son Tucker was arrested. And details emerged that Tucker confessed that he and his friend Mitchell Young did in fact break into the house with the plan to kill the Cipriano family, steal the contents of his family safe, and flee to Mexico in order to buy drugs. And it's that story of gruesome patricide, right? That's what patricide is. It's the attempt to kill the very person who gave you life, the attempt to kill your father. It's that exact story that finds its parallel in the Bible. In fact, it's the setting for Psalm 3 that we just read. You might have noticed in uh, the beginning of the psalm, you notice there's a superscription, and it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's actually part of the Bible. And what it's telling us is that the setting of this psalm comes from the historical books of the Old Testament, one of these central stories of the Old Testament of patricide. And in order to understand that story, you know, you can go back, you can read that, that's 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16, but you can take a step back and you can see that this story is pretty intricate that leads up to Psalm 3. In fact, like any good story, there are multiple threads that run through it. And the first thread is the story of the rise to supremacy of King David. You might remember that name, King David. He's the one who authored Psalm 3. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. Well, David had made a name for himself. He had defeated Goliath the Gittite, who was this powerful soldier. David had successfully become the most powerful military commander in the world. He had conquered the Philistines almost into extinction, which no other king or judge of Israel had been able to do. David had seized Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a powerful stronghold in the Middle East. And David had brought the ark of God, the epicenter of the worship of God, into Jerusalem. And David is on top. You have the supremacy of David. And not only that, there's another thread to this story because God visits David by the prophet Nathan. And he gives him these remarkable promises that God had not given anybody since all the way back a thousand years to Abraham. And Nathan visits David and he tells him, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. When your days are fulfilled, you, David, will lie down with your fathers. I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. See, what God is telling David through the prophet is that David's name would be great, that everybody would know the name of King David. He also said that one of his offspring would be a king, and it would be a king that would be much more powerful than David. In fact, this king would be an eternal king. This king would be considered God's son. So he would not be just king on the earth, but he would also be the king of heaven. He would be the very son of God. And we know who that is. It is? Yes, right. Sunday school answer, right? 
So you have the rise and supremacy of David. That's act one. But is that all of the story? You have the rise and supremacy of David and these great covenant promises. That's act one. And if the story ended there, it would all be well. But there's a second thread to this story, and it's act two. And in act two, we see one of history's greatest infamies, one of the greatest downfalls of history. We're told that David, in the spring, at the time when kings usually were to go into battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. So David, instead of going out to battle with his kingdom, with his army, he stayed home. And we're told that his military had good success. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch as he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And as if adultery wasn't bad enough, we hear that David hatches this scheme. David hatches this plot to actually kill Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's wife. And we're told later on, David had forgiveness. David was forgiven by God for this sin, but there would be resulting consequences for David's sin. And so what happens is Nathan the prophet comes again to David. And this time the message is not about great things for David, great covenant promises for David, great things that are happened to David, further supremacy for David. Instead, Nathan delivers this prophecy from God and he tells him, Now therefore, David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. And what he said that he would do is he would uh, actually turn the sword against David's house and he would raise up evil out of David's own house. In other words, what God is saying, hey, David, your secret sins, those sins that you thought that you could cover up, those sins that you thought would never be brought to the light of day, your adultery, your murder, they would be brought to light and the sword will be turned to you continually. Evil will rise up from within your own house. And so here you see act one gives way to act two. David's supremacy leads to infamy and downfall. All of his sins and the consequences thereof would come to light. I love this quote from an author, I'm not sure exactly who said it, but I remember it. There are three acts to any story, the rise, the downfall, and the resolution. And naturally, nobody wants to live in act two. Anybody else here in act two? <laughs> in the downfall stage? So David's great rise, these covenant promises in act one, they're going to come upon David in infamy, and this prophecy by Nathan is going to come to play out. And bit by bit, as you continue to read the story, you see David's prophecy given by Nathan, that is playing out. In fact, David's son Amnon, one of his other sons, he falls desperately in love with his half-sister Tamar. And he 
hatches up this scheme with his uncle, who's David's brother. He hatches up this scheme to rape Tamar, to rape his own sister. And here's where the final thread of the story is woven in. Absalom, we're told, enters the story. And Absalom is the full brother of Tamar. And he is furious at Amnon for having shamed and raped his sister and for David, the king, not doing anything about it. And Absalom is enraged, so his servants murder Amnon in cold blood. And all you see David doing throughout the entire story is sitting on his hands. David does absolutely nothing to make any of those situations better. Throughout the story, David does nothing to uphold the honor of his own daughter, Tamar. He does nothing to bring justice to Amnon, his son. He does nothing in response to Absalom's murder of his son. And you begin to think to yourself, this is the evil rising up in David's household. This is the prophecy of Nathan coming to fruition. This is the sword being turned slowly in David's direction. And as David recedes into the background, all of a sudden Absalom starts to rise. Absalom begins this conspiracy. What he does is he stands at the entrance of the city gates and his people are coming in. He starts bad-mouthing his dad, saying, yeah, my dad's not going to give you justice. He's too busy. He's too old. He can't even fight his own battles. And he starts turning people away from David, but then also turning people toward himself. And everybody supports Absalom. He's persuasive, he's handsome, he's tall. The Bible even says that he had great hair. <laughs> so this, this guy that you're seeing, it has all the makings of a modern-day reality TV star turned politician. We don't know any of those, by the way. Everyone loves Absalom. And you see what all this conspiring actually turns into. The Bible says, So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. With this newfound power, Absalom forms a coup. He declares himself king over Israel, and he sets out to commit patricide, to kill his father, to usurp his throne and to utterly take over the kingdom that his dad had built. And naturally, what does David do? He flees. Anybody ever seen those movies, The Prince of Egypt and Joseph, King of Dreams? There were these movies put out by DreamWorks, and they recount the stories of these great Old Testament figures. And I always wonder, why have they not created David, the rise and fall? Because it's such a fascinating story, right? And one thing that you probably notice throughout all of this is that behind all the things going on in David's story is the very hand of God. Did you notice that? Who said he would raise up evil in the house of David? God did. Who told David, I will turn the sword against you? God did. Who knew that David wouldn't go out to battle and that he would sleep with Bathsheba, and that he would murder Uriah the Hittite. Well, God did. God, in this story we see, is the sovereign, almighty God of the universe. Sovereignty meaning everything in this story happens according to God's plan and God's intention. He controls everything. 
From David's rise to supremacy to David's downfall and infamy, God is sovereign over every thread of the story and every detail of David's life and the lives of you and me. And all these three threads, all of these three threads come together, they coalesce at the beginning of Psalm 3. That's why you read a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Now you can appreciate why in verse 1 of the psalm, David writes, he cries out, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You can hear David's trepidation and fear. And you can hear that in those two verses with the repetition of that word many, many, many. Many rise against me. Many say there's no salvation for me in God. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. And that word foes, it's a Hebrew word. It's sa'ar. And that word sa'ar literally means pressing in. It's collapsing in. If you've seen that movie, The Crucible, which recounts the story of the Salem witch trials, and you see that in order to coax confessions out of some of the people to say that they're witches, what they do is they lay them on the ground and they slowly and surely, bit by bit, add these stones to people's chest until they literally cannot breathe and they squeeze out a confession from these people. That's what David is saying with these foes. They are being heaped upon him. They are pressing in on him. And it looks like from all human prospects, there's absolutely no relent. And you have to remember, this is not merely a story of patricide. It is that, but it is also the consequence of David's secret sins of adultery and murder being brought to light and God's prophecy through Nathan unfolding in David's life. What David is seeing when he's looking at these foes, he is seeing his own sins returning back on him and pressing him and collapsing in on him. Anybody remember Charles Colson? He died recently. But Charles Colson, he was known as one of the plotters of the Watergate scandal. And in fact, he was known as part of the Watergate Seven. These were people who were closest to Richard Nixon who had hatched this plot in order to get uh, information from the Dem Democratic National Convention and their committee in order to win re-election for Richard Nixon. And through all of this, Charles Colson was known as the hatchet man. He was the man who was pretty much the muscle behind Richard Nixon, and he was the one who kind of hatched this scheme and plotted to cover up the Watergate scandal. And all of a sudden, bit by bit, after the, se the several people, the five people who were caught actually carrying out this plan, bit by bit, all of a sudden you see Charles Colson started feeling the pressure. He started realizing that his plan was coming back to fruition on him. And then in March 1973, he resigned for the White House because he couldn't take the pressure any longer. But then, after retreating to kind of private law practice for a year, one year later in March 1974, he was indicted by prosecutors. And all of his lies, all of his misdeeds, all of his sins leaked out little by little. And he, who once called himself the expert of cover-ups ultimately realized that his secret sins had been brought to light and that he couldn't escape it any longer. And Colson, just like David, came to this realization that life was pressing in on him. His true self was being exposed 
and he couldn't flee from it any longer. I, I don't know if any of you have had kind of similar things happen in your own life, but and I think I've shared this story before. I can remember distinctly before I became a follower of Jesus that I had this same incidence of things that I had tried to cover up, darkness that I had tried to hide, sins that I had tried to bury came back on my own head. In fact, when I was 18 years old, one of my best friends had a girlfriend. He absolutely loved this girlfriend, followed her, adored her. And one night I tried to steal that girlfriend from my friend. And I thought I was getting away with it. I thought I was clever by it. And then one night, while I was drunk, by the way, I called my friend and I told him, hey, I'd love for you to come hang out with me. And he says, hey, I know what you've done and I never want to see your face again. Many of you might be in that similar situation today where you have your sins that you thought yeah, nobody knows about, nobody will ever find out, they're pressing in on you, and you wonder, well, what, what can you do in that kind of situation? And when you look back at David, as his sins are brought to light and God's prophecy through Nathan unfolds, he's fleeing from his own, he's fleeing from his own son, you see what David says. Maybe the biggest insult that he has is in verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for David in God. God has cut him off. God has abandoned him. God will not help him. God has tossed David aside. And it's possible that what David is actually writing about here is a true story. This actually happened to David. People really were cursing David and blaspheming David to his face. You read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Once David is fleeing, we're told that this man named Shimei comes to David. And we read, King David came to Baram, and there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were at his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And like any good right-hand man, one of David's right-hand man, his name is Abishai, he says, David, let me go over and kill that guy for you. But David's response is something different. He says, the king, David, said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Talking about uh, Abishai. What have I to do with you? If Shimei is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. So you hear what David is saying. Abishai, what Shimei is saying is true. I am a man of blood. I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. God has raised up evil within my own house. He's turned the sword against me. He's brought my sin to light. And now God has sent Shimei to curse me publicly in my infamy. God has raised up these foes in accordance with the prophecy of Nathan. He has raised up these foes against me. David knows behind these foes and enemies pressing in on him is the sovereign hand and plan of God himself. 
How would you respond? I love the movie Bruce Almighty. It's uh, with Jim Carrey. Yeah, those of you who are laughing have seen it as well. Uh, and the, the movie starts, Bruce, everything is against Bruce. It, it seems as if the hand of God is against Bruce. In fact, that's kind of the main uh, part of the story. Everything's against him. He wakes up and his hockey team loses. He likes the Buffalo Savers, so that's natural. But his hockey team loses. And, and he says, well, of course, they're my team. They're my team. Of course they lose. He's late for work, and he says, of course, that's my luck. Of course. He's passed up for a promotion, and he says, there must be an anti-Bruce ceiling in this place that I just can't break through. And even when he tries to help somebody in need, he tries to help a homeless person on the side of the street. He's attacked by thugs, and then he says, well, that's what I get. That's what I get for trying to help someone. And then in this kind of crescendo of self-pity and victimhood, he says, God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. Every negative instance in Bruce in Bruce's life, went on this list. It was a list of grievances of how God was against him, on how God was not good, on why God was out to get him, and why he, Bruce, was justified in not believing or following that God. And what makes the movie so comical is we do the same exact thing. We do the same exact thing. Every negative instance in our life, we can turn to justify ourselves and say we are victims of God. We turn to use as evidence that God must be against us. We can turn to believe that God is not good. We can turn to believe that we are actually victims of God instead of perpetrators against God. Like when my daughter the other day took off her diaper in the middle of the night and then woke us up at 3 a.m. saying poo-poo, poo-poo, poo-poo. And we go into her bedroom and you see poo-poo all over the floor and you cry out, sovereign! God of the universe. <laughs> what are you doing? But notice David's response in verse 3. David doesn't do that. David doesn't turn God's opposition to him as justification to shout blasphemies back at God. Instead, look at what David says in verse 3. He says, but you... O Lord, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. Even though Absalom wants to drive an arrow through my heart, you are my shield. You are my protector. Even though your hand is firing those arrows behind Absalom, you nonetheless are the shield about me. But you, O Lord, he says, are my glory. Even though Absalom, his own son, meant to usurp his throne, even though he meant to humiliate him publicly and drive him down into infamy, infamy, God says, or David says, but you, O Lord, are my glory. You are my glory. Even though Absalom means to step on my throat, which was a sign of shame, a sign to show that a rival king has dominance. David says, but you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. Even though many say of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Verse 4, David cries, but you, O Lord, will answer me from your holy hill when I cry to you. David knows his God. David knows the character of this God who is 
bringing his sins upon him. He knows that the God who orchestrates his downfall and infamy by the hand of Absalom is the same God who serves as his shield, lifts up his head, crowns him with glory, answers his prayers. The same God who heaps up foes that are pressing in upon David is the same God who shields him from those very enemies. The same God who unfolds a prophecy to bring to light David's sin and David's shame is the same God who lifts up his head in glory and crowns him with eternal life. It's like one Puritan poem. It gets at this very idea. Even God, in his harm for his children, means to heal. Even God, in his harm, even in his harm of us, by his hand means to heal us. That's what David knows about this God. David knows that even in the downfall of his kingship, God means to heal him and bring him into something better. It's with that confidence in that sovereign God that David in verse 5 does something that almost none of us could do. (laughs) I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Do you believe in that God? You know, I was asking my kids, sometimes uh, when I'm struggling with sermons, I ask my kids for help. And um, I was asking them as I was driving them to school, it was the last day of school, and I was talking about this psalm, and I was talking about Absalom and overtaking David, and there were 10,000 people around David. And I said, hey, if an entire army was coming after you, do you think that you could sleep? And they said, oh, no, absolutely not. And so I drop them off, and I'm still ruminating on this. And as I'm driving away, I started to think, well, you know what I should have asked him? What if you knew that God was more powerful than those enemies? In fact, what if you knew that God was so sovereign, so powerful, so in control of every circumstance of your life that he actually planned to send those enemies to you and that even in the midst of orchestrating your downfall, you knew he meant for your good and for your healing? Then could you sleep? I'd imagine they'd say, what? (laughs) And do you believe that? That the same God who denied your promotion, the same God who took your spouse before he took you, the same God who allowed your past failures to come to light, the same God who wrecked a relationship that you held precious in your life, do you believe that that God in his harm means to heal you? I always think of the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata was a, a very good high school swimmer. She had plans to go beyond high school to be a college swimmer. She was a great athlete. And when she was 18 years old, she dived into a shallow end in, uh, the, in, in Cape Cod. And in her dive into water that she thought was some 10 feet deep, which was only three feet deep, she hit the top of her head and went into complete paralysis. And through many years of sitting in hospital beds and praying for healing and going to miracle healers who she thought would be the answer to her paralysis, she ended up through all of that, through all the wheelchairs, through all of this pain, through all of this suffering, through all of this turmoil, she writes in one of her books, this paralysis, this wheelchair is God's greatest mercy to me. See, David can sleep He can find rest even in the face of many thousands of people who set themselves against him all around because he believed in that God, in that God. 
Notice David does not say, you know what? I lay down and I slept because of my sunny disposition in the face of adversity. I lay down and slept again because I have the power of positive thinking and optimism despite any obstacle that is in my way. Because I have cultivated the habits of highly successful people and know nothing can stand in my way on my rise to kinghood. He does not say that, does he? No, David says, I lay down and slept because God sustained me. The same God who orchestrated my downfall and brought my sin to light and brought my shame to light is my shield. And because of that, no matter what he brings against me, I can rest. In that same God, we also know, see, David was looking forward. David was looking forward to this great promise. Remember the promise that David had gotten from the prophet Nathan? That a king would come from him? that would be an eternal king, that would be the savior of the world, he was looking forward to that so he could rest knowing that God would bring that plan about even if he were to die. We look back on that same God who in his sovereignty orchestrated the crucifixion of his own son, who actually delivered up his own son to Roman soldiers and to Jewish authorities to be crucified for our sins. That same God who allowed his son to be taunted on the cross and taunted, saying, he trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. That same God, that same God also, after the death of Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead. He lifted up his head in glory by rising him from the dead. And through his harm, what was his intention? To heal us. Because this is always true. If you follow Jesus, even God in his harm for his children means to heal. And friends, I say this with all gentleness. I say this with all sincerity. If you do not believe in that God, you do not believe in God. A God who is not all-powerful and sovereign over every fabric of your life, who holds the very breath that you are breathing in now in his hands and can take it away at any moment, but can also heal you of your greatest need, which is sin. If you do not believe in that God, you do not have a God at all. And it's in knowing that God that David, he, he cries out in this prayer to his sovereign God, this wonderful prayer. Did, have you ever wondered in verse 4 when David says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, what David cried out? Well, you see it in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. And he goes on and says, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessings be on your people. Even though David knows, based on his sin, based on his history, he does not deserve salvation, does not deserve deliverance, he cries out to God to deliver him, to punish his enemies, because if anyone is powerful enough to overcome 10,000 of David's enemies, David knows it's this God. Not a God who is out to carry out my plans in life, but a God who wants to carry out his plans in my life. 
The God who held David's life, David's death, David's rise, David's downfall, that is the only God who could overcome not only his enemies, but his own sin, which had been shamefully brought to light. David acknowledges from beginning to end, his life is in the hands of God. And it's with that confidence he can write, hey, even though my enemies are saying things that are true about me, that I am a sinner, that I am a man of blood, David nonetheless has confidence Salvation, salvation belongs to the Lord. He's the one who saves. That everything true about us does not thwart what God says is true about us, that we are his children. And again, even God in his harm for his children means to heal us. And one of the things that we do in my my household is called catechism. I'll close on this. We do catechism, which is kind of like this question and answer that you do back with your kids. And the entire purpose of it is you want these great truths that David knows and can pray when the time comes, when he has to pray to a sovereign God in the face of 10,000 enemies. We want our kids to know, you have to know this about God. So these catechisms do these questions and answers about who is this God that we believe in and what has he done for us? And one of the catechisms that we come back to frequently is the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism begins with these words, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the kids are supposed to respond, that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior and God, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of my greatest enemy, the devil. He also preserves, right? He shields me in such a way that without the will of my sovereign heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Indeed, salvation belongs to the Lord because God, even in his harm for his children, means to heal. Friends, if you do not believe in that God, then you do not have a God. Because this God holds the whole world and every fabric of our life in his sovereign, all-powerful hands. And they're the hands that were nailed and crucified onto the cross of Calvary. That is the God we serve. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we have great comfort in your sovereign hand. God, we have rest knowing you are our Savior and that salvation belongs to you. God, in the harm inflicted on your son on the tree, in being crucified on a Roman cross, you have lifted us in glory. You have forgiven our sins. And in his resurrection, you have brought healings in his wings. And as he sits enthroned in heaven, God, we have this great confidence that you are a God who is for us. You are always faithful. And just like David cried out to you, God, we have this confidence to cry out to you. Defeat our enemies, God, for salvation belongs to the Lord. God, help us praise you for your goodness. Praise you that even in the harm of our life, that is not justification for us to gripe against you, but to praise you all the more, knowing in our harm you mean our healing. God, help us cry that out and sing that back to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.